a Podcast One production. Seth Godin is an author, entrepreneur and most of all a teacher. He is one of our wisest voices, not only on effective marketing and leadership, but also on the spread of ideas and changing everything to lead a more fulfilled life. Seth says, if failure is not an option, then neither is success. In this heartfelt conversation, Seth and I talk about the power of knowledge, dancing with fear, and why seeking joy is so important. Joy is different than satisfaction. Joy is different than applause. And joy is very different than money. So don't let the system around you trick you into thinking joy is anything but what joy is. And if you can define joy, you will be amazed at how easy it might be to find. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Seth's daily blog is one of the most read in the world. He is the author of 20 best-selling books, including The Dip, Lynchpin, This Is Marketing, and his most recent book, The Practice, Shipping Creative Work. In this episode, you will learn the key habits that lead to success and happiness. Seth, you speak quite a bit about the importance of connection, and I believe that connection comes from a young age. Can you tell us a bit about your childhood? Well, I won the birthday lottery. I had great parents. I grew up in the right place at the right time with a lot of privilege. Um, And I also know people who are leaders and connectors who have none of those things going for them. Yeah. And I think it's really important that we let ourselves off the hook because what got you here isn't where you have to go next. And my take is that leaning into possibility and turning it into an opportunity to improve things around us is available to people regardless of how much privilege they started with. Um, It's harder for a lot of people than it is for me, but that doesn't mean it can't be done. Mm. And it's really urgent that we do it because all we have as humans is our ability to be with other humans. One thing that we learned from the lockdown over the summer is that people really don't like being alone. And Opening the door to connection, shipping our best work, putting it in front of other people to make things a little better. I think that's one way to be fully human. What did you learn from your younger years and, you know, any kind of important things when you were growing up that you've taken on to your work today? Well, I spent a fair amount of time trying to please the wrong group of people. And I think this idea of the smallest viable audience is so important, particularly in a time when everyone's on social media. And so everyone has the possibility of being friends in quotation marks with a billion people being liked in quotation marks by a billion people. You, if you follow that thread too long, you're going to end up being meaningless because you're trying to fit in all the way. Or if your goal is to be a Kardashian as soon as possible, you're going to end up being obnoxious because you're going too fast. And the alternative is to find a small group of people who need you and who will benefit from what you have to say. And high school makes that really hard. Mm. So high school wasn't good for me. 
because in high school, I was spending too much time with people who weren't enjoying spending time with me. It's a funny thing, isn't it? You know, when you look back to your high school years and you think, like, I, I feel like I do the same, and you think, mine were okay. But then I realised when I went to university, wow, like, this is awesome. And I was studying exactly what I wanted to do. And I, you know, met the group of people I wanted to hang out with. And I was like, maybe school wasn't that good. But that is kind of the system that we still have going today. How do you look at the schools that our kids, uh, teenagers, go and learn at today? Yeah, so in the States, public school is a school that everyone can go to for free. And I think public school is really important. Public school is a great connection device, a great leveling device, great opportunity machine, and it has a huge problem. And the problem is it tends to reward uh, a common denominator and it tends to do it brutally, that it pushes people to fit in. Mm. And so what we have to embrace is that every kid is also homeschooled, that every kid is learning something from three o'clock in the afternoon to eight o'clock the next morning. And some kids are lucky enough to grow up in a home with people who have the time and patience to help them with that, and some don't. But the internet has opened the door to connect kids with their passion not just with the geographical kids who happen to be sitting next to them in class. Mm. And the earlier we can help a kid choose to enroll in a journey, as opposed to being forced to do education, the sooner they will find the passion they need to really become who they want to be. When did you discover what your passion was? So um, I made the decision probably when I was 19, that instead of uh, being dissatisfied with the world until I found what I was passionate about, that it was easier to be passionate about what I was doing. Mm. And if you do that, all you have to change is your passion. You don't have to change anything else. And I just decided that my day would be better if I made the commitment to have today be exactly the day I was hoping it would be based on what was available to me. And what I discovered almost magically is as soon as I made that decision, it started to come true. And so I never did a lot of, you know, I was never a ski jumper or on the cover of this magazine or doing that thing that you're supposed to say, that's my dream. Yeah. No, my dream was teaching canoeing to 20 kids or teaching computer science to 18 people or running a small business on campus. And I couldn't imagine doing anything better than that at the time. And that commitment to passion, I think, is a really good shortcut. I tend to agree. I think that as soon as you find your passion, your world just absolutely lights up and then other things come in that wouldn't have before when you weren't following that thing that you absolutely loved. That's right. And if you're going to have today only one time, you might as well make it feel like you're glad you're having it. Mm. What would you say to people who at the moment haven't quite found their passion yet? Stop looking other places. You already have the thing you could be passionate about if you want to be, right? Like at what point are you going to decide you're not going to be able to trade your husband in for George Clooney? You're just not. George Clooney's not coming over. So given that that's the case, why don't you just try out being passionate about the person you are married to, Yeah. right? Because you may discover that it sort of works out. And, uh, you know, leaving the interpersonal aside, because that's such a complicated topic, all of us come from wherever we came from. And 
we get to do a thing with a limited amount of freedom. No one has unlimited freedom. But if we can commit to that, you know, Simon Sinek and I disagree about this. I think your why is not something you should be busy trying to guess. You should just say, how do I make what I'm doing right now my why? Mm. That's so true. That's such a good point. One thing, Seth, you say a lot of amazing things, but a phrase that really stuck out for me that you say is learning is magical because I know something and I give that to you and I still have that. When did you decide that you wanted to become this amazing teacher? So learning and education are not the same thing. Mm. Education in our culture is mandatory. It's based on compliance. And here's how you know if you're in an educational setting. If someone says, will this be on the test? That's education. Will this be on the test means what's the minimum I can do to get the piece of paper? I have no interest in education. Learning is voluntary. Learning is done by doing. That's Mm -hmm. how you learn to ride a bike. Not because you got a paper that said you're a certified bike rider, but because you wanted to ride a bike. And when I was uh, 16 or 17, uh, I was lucky enough to become an instructor of style canoeing in Northern Canada. And what I discovered is most kids didn't want to do it. And that was fine because the kids who did want to do it were giving me something precious, their trust and their attention. And I was giving them back something precious, which was opportunity and my attention. And after they learned it, I still had it and they had it too. And I was like, that person is a different person because I showed up today. I'd like to do that again. And I've been doing the same thing ever since. Wow. And what is that? Do you remember the first time that you did that, how that made you feel? I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember her name. It was Joanna. Joanna was a little bit taller than me. She was 12 or 13 years old. And if you had a disagreement with her, she would punch you in the nose. And that was the only way she knew how to express her frustration. And we spent two hours together that afternoon. And she never punched a kid ever again for the rest of her life. And I get choked up just thinking about it. Isn't that amazing? And it's, you know, you just make that little bit of difference in somebody's life and you change, you change them forever in such a beautiful way. Yeah, and it doesn't always work because I didn't change them. She changed her. She yeah. was ready. Yeah. Right? And just being present when people are ready is a big chunk of it. And part of the problem with organized school and and organized intervention is you're showing up when the person isn't ready. Mm. And we need to spend more time earning enrollment from people, people who want to go on the journey as opposed to forcing them to fit into our system. So Seth, you talk about how books are not a great way to make a living, but they make a difference, which I couldn't agree with more. Your new book is out, which is called The Practice, Shipping Creative Work. You talk about this idea about how our best work happens when we contribute something new, something that will make an important improvement to the world. So let's talk a bit about that. We have been trained to do something that is not new because in 1930, the assembly line needed us to plug part A into part B over and over and over again. But now we have a robot to do that. And then we train people how to make French fries. But now McDonald's has a robot to do that. And then we train people how to type, but now 
word processing and scanning take care and on and on and on. So any job that you do where we can write down what you do in a manual, they're going to find someone cheaper and easier than you to do it. Mm. That's not our biggest contribution. Our biggest contribution is to solve interesting problems. And to solve an interesting problem means you're doing something that might not work, something for the first time, something that we would miss if you didn't do it. And we brainwashed and indoctrinated everyone not to want to do that work. And we've built this whole mystical framework around creativity with a capital C. And that's not true. That people do creative things all the time. They just don't want it to be labeled that way. And I am arguing in this book that the creative process is available to anyone. It's a skill. It is not a talent. And because it's a skill, you can learn it. How do you learn it? Well, you begin by being clear that it's something you can learn. Mm. That no one says, I'm never going to be able to throw a ball or ride a bike because I wasn't born able to do that. Well, yeah, but you weren't able to born, born able to walk or talk either. You figured it out because those are skills. Well, this skill, like most skills, happens because you do it in the small before you do it in the big. I'll never be able to write a book, someone says. Okay, can you write a chapter? Can you write a sentence? Can you write one sentence that if someone read it, they would be glad they did? Because I bet if you practice for a couple hours, you could squeeze out one sentence that would be worth reading. And if you can write one sentence, I'm betting you can write two. And my friend, late friend Isaac Asimov, who invented the robot as we know it, published 400 books in his lifetime. 400. And I said, Isaac, how do you do that? And he said, Seth, every morning I get up and at 6.30 in the morning, I sit down at this manual typewriter and I type until noon and then I'm done for the day. And what his brain realized early on is this guy's going to type all day, no matter what I do. So I might as well let him type something good because once you've committed to typing, something good might squeeze out. And if something good squeezes out, keep that, throw the rest away. And you're one line closer to writing 400 books. Why do you think they get that fear? Like, you know, I'm not creative. And as you said before, creativity has this whole mysticism around it. You know, you have to be this certain type of person to be creative. Why do you think that is? Sarah, every country I've ever been to says, someone takes me aside and says, you know, in our country, we have this thing called the tall poppy syndrome. Mm. And they think it's only in their country that this exists. And the tall poppy syndrome, as you well know, is this idea that you don't want to be the tallest plant because if you are, you're going to get chopped down by everybody else. And if you speak up creatively, someone's going to not like it. That if you go look at the music, at the record reviews for Bob Dylan, who's a Nobel Prize winner, mm-hmm. lots of people don't like it. In fact, the books with the most one-star ratings on Amazon are books like Harry Potter because the soon as it becomes popular, someone's showing up and saying, I hate this. It's way easier to not do that. It's way easier to just say, what do you want me to do today? As opposed to say, here, I made this. But that generous act of here, I made this, that's what it means to be human. How have you dealt with critics? I mean, you've written a lot of amazing books, but I'm sure that you've had critics. How do you deal with them? So I have a hack. I'm happy to share it. Yeah. I learned it eight years ago and I haven't violated it once. I have not read an Amazon review of my work in eight years, not one of them, because I have never met an author who said to me, Seth, I read all my one-star reviews and now I'm a much better writer. (laughs) 
That, that never happens mm. because you know what it means when you get a one-star review? It means someone just announced their, your book wasn't for them. Okay, thanks for letting me know it wasn't for you. Sorry to hear that. But you're, the rest of your feedback is irrelevant to me because some people liked it, you didn't. Okay, but I didn't write it for you because you mm. didn't like it. I wrote it for the people who liked it. And I get feedback all the time from people I can look in the eye, from people I trust, from people who are on the same journey as me. I mean, this book, the practice I wrote sitting next to 500 people who were in the workshop around it. I saw all 500 people engage with the work over and over again. That's way more useful than some anonymous troll saying I wrote a one-star book. That doesn't help me or them. And as far as social media, I know that you're on Instagram. I don't think you have a huge presence on the other platforms. You just don't, there's nothing negative written or you just kind of just ignore that. I don't use Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Mm. I don't use them at all. I have a colleague who takes some of my work and posts it on Instagram. Yeah. And I never, ever read what people say there. And I'm honest about that. Yeah, great. Because my goal is not to be perfect. I, I will fail at that. And my goal is not to be universally liked. I already failed at that. My goal is to do my work. And I don't do my work with a lot of mysticism. I don't believe that the muse is coming in the middle of the night and kissing me with a brilliant idea. It's just my work. And, you know, plumbers know if they did a good job because the pipe doesn't leak. And I can tell if I've written something I'm glad I wrote. But I don't need to surround myself with an infinite number of people who are giving me feedback, positive or negative, about the work. That's not why I'm writing it. And so social media has confused so many people who have said, well, if people don't think I'm cute on Instagram, I'm a failure. Why, why are you giving them that power? Yeah. That's not up to them. And the people who built the social media platforms for a living are making you insecure, for a living are making you unhappy. You don't have to be the product of what they make if you don't want to be. Mm. In the practice, you talk about two concepts that I find quite fascinating. Seek joy and dance with fear. I feel like I've danced with a lot of fear recently and it's been extremely uncomfortable. Can you tell us a bit about both of those concepts and explain them in more depth? Sure. Let's start with dance with fear. What's the alternative to dancing with fear? The alternative is to try to make fear go away. And with mosquitoes, we have technologies to make mosquitoes go away. But with fear, if you try to make it go away, it just gets stronger. The noise just gets louder. That trying to say, I'd like to go back to normal, fear, will you please leave, reminds the fear how much power it has. And the fear just gets louder. Mm. So what I mean by dance with fear is not you should eagerly welcome fear into your life. Fear could suck particularly if you're endangered physically or emotionally, mm. but it's here. Okay. Now what are you going to do about it? Well, one thing you can do about it is look at right in the eye and say, welcome, welcome, pull up a chair. You're going to hear here for a while. Have a seat. Let's get comfortable. Because as soon as you say that to fear, as soon as you invite it to waltz, it gets bored and it leaves. And so it's a long-term plan to say this work I signed up to do. Sometimes it will bring fear with it. And that's part of the deal. No one runs the marathon and says to their coach, how do I do this without getting tired? Yeah. Nobody. The people who finish the marathon finish it because they figured out where to put the tired. And the same thing is true with fear. 
And then seek joy is a little simpler than that, which is joy is different than satisfaction. Joy is different than applause. And joy is very different than money. So don't let the system around you trick you into thinking joy is anything but what joy is. And if you can define joy, you will be amazed at how easy it might be to find. How do you find joy in your life? You know, if I have an interaction with somebody, like the one I'm having with you right now, and I say something that surprises you and gets under your skin a little bit and I can see it in your eyes, that's a joyful moment for me. And, you know, I learned this the hard way. A year and a half ago, I gave a speech in Mexico and I don't speak Spanish. And there are a couple of things, if you ever want to be a professional speaker, you should avoid. Simultaneous translation, because mm. people have these headphones on, and convention centers, because they're not organized for speeches. Mm. So here I am with simultaneous translation and a convention center, and I'm giving my talk, and there's a woman in the fourth row. She's on her cell phone. Now, ordinarily, okay, fine, you're listening to your cell phone. She's talking on her cell phone at full volume the whole time. And I'm up there and I change my talk every time I give it. So I'm now giving a talk about how rude it is to be on your cell phone. Basically I'm aiming all of my energy at this woman in the fourth row. Mm. I didn't make her day any better. And she didn't make my day any better. Mm. And she talked on the phone the whole time. I did not seek joy. Joy was sitting three seats away from this woman. I don't know if her name was joy. Maybe it was, but three seats away. Here's a woman who I was actually connecting with. Here's a woman who four years from now might even remember that I flew down to Mexico City and gave a speech and I ignored her because I was busy talking to someone who wasn't there for me. And I have tried very hard not to do that ever again. My job is to do this work the best I know how. And if that means that you don't get the joke, then I'm just going to pretend you're not there. And going back to dancing with fear, in times in your life where you've obviously done that and it's been hard and we have those nights where you wake up in the middle of the night and you have that ache, it's that emptiness, like, oh, what's going on? What has life thrown at me now? How do you get past that? One of my favourite riffs in the book is called um, The World's Worst Boss. Yes. And in in the book I describe um, the fact that you might work for somebody who never has a nice thing to say about you, bothers you all the time, calls you at home in the middle of the night, wakes you up and reminds you about things that aren't working Mm. and basically doesn't treat you with respect. And usually at this point in the riff, people realize who I'm talking about, which is I'm talking about Sarah. I'm talking about the person who's listening right now, Mm. that we are our own boss. And if we had a boss like that in the real world, we quit. So you need a new boss. And you need to find a boss who appreciates what you're doing, but more important, understands that the best way to you to get you to do better work is not to be a jerk. And so if you're busy working for a jerk, that voice in your head, figure out how to rewire that dialogue is way better than arguing. That when the boss wakes you up in the middle of the night about something that's not going to work tomorrow, don't try to persuade the boss that it's going to work because that's like pushing the fear away. Mm but you can dance with it. You can say, oh, that's interesting. What else you got? That's interesting. What else you got? That's it? You got anything else? Because after like three or four sentences, that boss is too stupid to have anything else to say. Mm. And that boss will then become so exhausted you can go back to sleep. 
That's a, that's very true. The the practice talks about embracing generosity, which is obviously a beautiful thing. Why did you find this important? Yeah, this is one of the key underpinnings of non-sociopath creativity. There are some people who are so narcissistic and selfish that they are only creating so they can win a prize, get money, become mm-hmm. famous, or just to screw everybody else. That's not my reader. That's not you. And then there are a lot of people who are afraid, who are hiding, who are holding back. And if we view our work as selfish, it's super easy to hold it back. Who am I to get up on stage? Who am I to raise my hand? Who am I to suggest something? I'm just taking from the group. But if you realize that every important innovation, every vaccine, every breakthrough, every hit song made us all better, then you realize it's generous to show up with your version of better. It's generous to say, here, I made this. You're actually a lifeguard and there are drowning people. And no one ever faults a lifeguard for saving a drowning person. Well, as a creator, there are people who need you and you might not save their life, but you will save something for them. And if you view this as a generous act, it's way easier to show up and do the work. You know, there are, I'm sure there are people out there, and I know I think I've felt this in my life many years ago, where you feel, you know, I've got this work. I just don't think it's good enough. Right. There are so many people out there writing about marketing. Why would they want mine? I'm nowhere near as smart as Seth Godin. And then that stops them. Yeah. What would you say to those people? Of course you're not good enough. Yet, then go listen to Billy Joel's demo tapes. They're terrible, right? Go listen to Bob Dylan in Greenwich Village, worse than he is now, right? Mm -hmm. That the beginning is always not so good. The books I wrote before I somehow became Seth Godin, they don't compare. So you're not good enough yet. But if you keep showing up with generosity, you're going to get better. We don't need another Seth Godin. There already is one. But we need the next you because there isn't one of those. And you will find your voice. But the only way to find your voice is to be wrong on the way to being right. And when people around you sometimes say, oh, no, you know, people do this a lot. I think with children, they'll be like, oh, you know, you're not really good at that. You should focus on something else. What would you say to them? Yeah. Thank you for bringing this back around. It's all about enrollment, what we Mm. talked about 20 minutes ago. Your job as a parent is not to find what your five-year-old is good at because your five-year-old isn't good at anything, at anything. There are no five-year-old surgeons. There are no five-year-old people have paintings hung in galleries. No, it's to help someone learn to be passionate, to help someone learn to believe that they can get better. And you don't know anybody who's running around wearing a tutu as an adult, but lots of kids took ballet and it crushed them because all they were taught to do was comply and then get, they got kicked out because they aged out or they didn't practice hard enough. So what's the lesson? Lesson is don't try too hard and you're going to fail. It makes so much more sense to say, you're not training to be a ballerina. You're training to be a creator. And the minute this isn't helping you on that journey, you should stop. But in the meantime, find joy. 
do that because it's joyful. And as soon as it stops being joyful, go do something else. Mm, It's so true. See the world as it is, is something you talk about in the practice. And this can be hard, especially at a time like now. How should we best embrace that? So here's the other myth that the media would like us to believe. You come up with a great idea and then it becomes Twitter and you're a billionaire. That what it means for something to be a great idea is that your idea is completely original. Everyone falls down over themselves. It's such a good idea. And then you win. I don't see any evidence of this anywhere, anytime. And instead, what we have is this opportunity to go on this dripwise journey and to do it as a practice. That's why the book is called that. That if you develop the practice of incrementally making things a little bit better, then you will continue to do so. And you might have started wanting to be a car designer, and then you became a fashion designer, and then you became a watercolorist, but the journey continues. And the practice is here, I made this, and learning how the world actually works. The problem with megalomania is you believe that the world is there for you. It's not there for you. So the way the world actually works is there's billions of us making tiny contributions And sometimes people get more credit than they deserve. And sometimes things go better than we expect. And then we get to do it again. That's how the world works. What's the biggest contribution you think you've made? Well, what I set out to do, I think I wrote it down 20 years ago, is I wanted to be measured by what the people I taught taught other people. Because I've never wanted to have a giant platform. I've just wanted to put worthy ideas out there. And so every once in a while... Someone will teach me something they learned from someone they learned from someone who learned it from me. (laughs) And when it comes around in a circle like that, it makes me very happy because it means there's been a ripple. It went through all the filters and it came around. And so I don't have a specific idea. I've had a lot of ideas. Most of them aren't very good. But I'm really proud of the idea that my students have students and that the word keeps spreading. What was the feeling when you first taught a group of people and you taught them your work, how was that? I would say the first 320 times, it was barely tolerable, just tolerable enough for me to keep going because you don't know who's in the room. You don't have it organized to get the right people in the room. And Then something flipped and suddenly the right people started showing up. And all of a sudden I felt like a genius, even though I was teaching the same thing. And so what I realized is don't get too attached to that part. And um, the feeling at the beginning is a feeling I'll never have again because no one knew where I was coming from or what I was doing. And I didn't know what I was doing, Mm. but the idea that I was just above the minimum enough to want to do it again That was a really special feeling. And a little aside, there's a comedian in the U.S. named Paula Poundstone. And Paula told me a story about um, going to a comedy club in the middle of a snowstorm. She really had a hustle to get there. And she shows up at the comedy club and there's only two people in the audience. 
And she's berating them and giving them a hard time. And then she says, wait, these are the people who came. The ones she's mad at are the ones who aren't there. These are the people who came. They came for me. What, what an opportunity to be here for them. Mm. And I, I think about that every time I turn on a camera and every time I go on stage. Thank you, Paula. Because if someone's willing to give up half an hour of their life to hear me prattle on, the least I can do is show up with my best self and say, this is something I might be able to teach you today. Thank you for coming. It is so true. Even if it's one person that you make a difference for, that one person is so important, just as important as a room of 100 people. Having trust in yourself and your own decisions can sometimes be quite difficult. I feel sometimes that comes with having a higher self-esteem. Do you still deal with a lot of self-doubt? It's the only kind of doubt that's available to me. So, yeah. Um, The original title of the book was Trust Yourself, three words. And my editor, who is a better marketer than I, said, Seth, that's not a good title because it's too hard. We have to somehow come around to it slowly for them, people, to realize what the whole thing is about is learning to trust ourselves, that there's two voices in our head. And uh, you grew up getting brainstormed, getting brainwashed into believing that that other voice wasn't there for you, particularly in my country, people of color, particularly women, particularly people who don't have a lot of privilege, constantly constantly indoctrinated that it's not on them or us to show up with our whole selves. And that ability to trust yourself, to go online, not to waste time, but to learn a skill, to figure out how to speak up, to do it for people who need to hear from you. That's really hard. Spiritual leaders have a hard time with it. Coaches have a hard time with it. Everybody trusting yourself to do the work you're capable of, that is one of the greatest crimes that we perpetrate every day is that we say to that voice in our head, no, not going to let you out today. Go back. And I wrote a book so that wouldn't happen so much. When you've had times where self-doubt has really reared its head, what have you done? Well, I write a blog every day, 7,000 days in a row, but most days I write five posts, four posts and delete the rest. Um, there are lots of times there are things I wanted to start or keep going and I couldn't bear and I had to stop. There are people who I've engaged with in my life personally, who I wanted to truly connect with, to truly see deeply, to have them know how much I cared about them. And I was afraid to say it. Uh, I would say most of the great failures of my life are not failures of commission where I did something that didn't work. They're failures of omission where I didn't have the guts to do the right thing. Do you feel that you've learned from that now? I'm sure trying. Mm. It's hard, but I'm sure trying. You know, lots of us now feel like everyone in the world is watching us because we're on social media. It was one thing to make a mistake in front of six people at a private seminar. It's another thing to make a mistake in front of a million people, or even if you don't have a million followers, maybe it'll spread. And so we hold back and we say ditto and we follow the leader. And I don't think that's productive. 
Yeah. So I am not proposing that people should not be held responsible for their words. They should be. And I'm not proposing you should expect that everything you do is going to work. I'm just saying there are generous things that we can do that are safer than we think they are. Have you ever spoken out about something and regretted it? Yeah, lots of times. Um, different kinds of regret. The um, There's the regret that comes from speech that isn't as polished as it should be, where I have, uh, instead of helping someone change what they're doing, I've sort of propelled them because it was harsh. Um, there are times that I've spoken out inarticulately and it didn't land and it didn't spread, right? You know, I started blogging a little bit about carbon and the change in the atmosphere about 10 years ago. But because I didn't get the feedback I was expecting, I sort of backed off. And I needed, should have done that better. And for 15 years, I've been blogging and talking about justice and racial justice, but I have been totally inadequate in my voice on that topic. So it usually happens because I lose my nerve. And because even though I might feel like I have something to add, I don't trust myself enough to add it. Why do you feel that you've been inadequate in talking about racial justice? Well, you know, I don't check the stats on my blog, but I can check enough to know that traditionally, if I did that, it was my least popular post of the week mm -hmm. or the month. And I read my email and I see who's writing to me and why they're writing to me. And if it was something that I could address after 450 years of injustice with a blog post and everything would be fixed, we'd be done. But it takes a lot more than that. Mm. And it takes a lot of discomfort. And there are a lot of obligations that come from having a microphone and having a voice. And the thing that a lot of people around the world are discovering is 20 people following on Instagram is still a voice. What are we going to do with it, right? And that doesn't mean everyone should run and pick up the issue of the day, whatever the issue of the day is, because the media just invents those and they come and they go. It means we got to stick with things. And in the circle we have influence over, maybe it's only five people, establish what that's like, right? That years ago I was given a gig somewhere and I passed somebody on the street who had been hitting their kid. And the easy thing to do would be walk by because it's none of my business. Mm. But I don't think the kid thought it was none of my business. And so the question is, how do you engage with a mom who's underwater, who's harried, who has insufficient resources? How do you help her not demonize her, but open a door and get to the next level? And that takes time and it takes patience and effort. And you can't do it for everyone, but you don't need to do it for everyone. You just need to do it for someone. And that's enough for now. How did you help her? Um, we went for a walk and I bought her lunch. Mm. And I've never talked about this in public, but you asked a good question. And I have no illusions that I saved that kid from much of anything. But lunch was enough to put us on the same side of the table. And then I looked up some resources for her and introduced her to some people who could help. And the whole thing took an hour of my time and cost me $9. Um, but too often we don't have in our culture an hour from the right agency or $9 available to make a difference. But I got to believe that if enough people do it enough times, 
little bit by little bit, mm. maybe we can decide how the world will be different. Because I know if any of us went back in a time machine a thousand years, we would run screaming from the world a thousand years ago, for sure. So what changed, right? The only thing that changed was us and our standards. So I would like to change the standards. And I started with marketing because it was easy. Mm. And then I moved to leadership. And now I'm moving to shipping creative work. But it's all the same. What is expected of us? Because we have so much privilege. What should we do with it? Yes. And I think we should make things a little better. Yes, I 100% agree. Who have been your mentors over the years that you were so unbelievably grateful for their work? I wrote a bunch of years ago about mentors versus heroes. Uh, mentoring, which is a fairly modern phenomenon, does not scale. Mm. Warren Buffett is just not going to drop everything to give you investing advice. He's <laughs> just not going to do that. Heroes, on the other hand, are widely available. They can even be dead. Mm. A hero is someone you can say to yourself, what would Gandhi do, mm. right? What would this person do? What would that person do? And just imagine them by your side. And I have been so lucky to have met many of my heroes. Um, and they range from people like Patti Smith, the author and musician, who every time I read a paragraph in her voice, suddenly I can rewrite it and make it better. To people like uh, my friend, the late Zig Ziglar or Isaac Asimov, who taught me about sort of speaking elliptically, but getting to the point. Um, my late parents, who I think of every single day. Mm. Uh, people like Sarah Jones, the uh, performance artist and playwright, and how she enables a different voice to come out of her mouth because she can. There's 200 people on that list and it keeps changing. Uh, that's the beauty of heroes. You don't mm. need their permission. You can just put them on the list. I love that idea of heroes. What's your greatest hope for society today? You know, people get very uncomfortable when they realize the earth has never been safer or healthier than it is right now. Mm. Even if we count the pandemic that we just all lived through, that we have created at the same time two things. This technology cushion that created a culture with fewer wars in it and better health care. At the same time, we created a media cycle that makes us feel miserable all the time. And uh, my hope is that soon we will realize that learning is the only thing that has ever changed the world and that we can learn whatever we want to learn. And if we want to learn to hate each other, that's probably what we'll do. But if we figure out how to learn to see possibility and learn to create, we got a shot. I mean, it's a long shot, but it's always been a long shot. Mm. What a miracle that we're even here talking thousands of miles apart from each other in different time zones. It's a miracle. Okay, now what are we going to do with it? And I hope we can do something better than argue. And talking to someone like you who sees what's possible is thrilling to me because I know how many people there are who want to make things better. Mm. And that's all we got. Do you follow the media? I know what's happening in the world, but it doesn't take me more than five minutes a day. Yeah. And maybe 10 minutes if it's a busy day. But this whole idea of breaking news and keeping up with this and keeping up with that, that's a trap. And I am pretty good at avoiding it. What's the lesson that took you the longest to learn? Probably comes from uh, Ben and Roz Zander. Uh, who wrote a magnificent book called The Art of Possibility. And the lesson is called Rule Number Six. 
and I will spare you the whole story. The punchline is don't take yourself so damn seriously. What's the best advice that you've ever been given? Ignore easily given advice. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) What is a life of greatness to you? You know, I've been studying the inventions of the 1800s and technologies that have changed our lives. And the people we think invented them almost never did. Mm. And the heroes who helped change our culture, they were around to get a credit or a statue, but they weren't really the ones who changed our culture. And most of the people who did great things, we never heard of. So I think this rear view mirror thing is a real problem. And uh, I try to avoid it. I think that instead what we can say is, do I see a generous act in front of me? And would it multiply if I took it? And it can be really, really small. You can pick up the phone and call someone you had an argument with three years ago and just say you're sorry. You don't have to apologize. You don't have to, you don't have to make them apologize. And you don't have to settle a score. You can just say, knowing this person is better than not knowing this person. I think that's an act of greatness because... We just don't have enough room in our brains for all the negativity. Seth Godin, thank you for sharing your wisdom with so many millions of people. The world is so unbelievably grateful. Thank you so much, Sarah. It was so good to talk to you. Stay connected by following A Life of Greatness on Instagram at A Life of Greatness Podcast. For more information and to watch videos on this and other episodes, head to sarahgrimberg.com. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate and review A Life of Greatness on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. A Life of Greatness is a Podcast One Australia production. Executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tottiel for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au.